Again, good morning, everyone, and good morning to all of those who are watching online. It's wonderful to be able to gather together, whether in person or virtually, to be bathed in the teachings and in the vibration of these great and sacred thoughts. Today's reading from Rays of the One Light is activity versus inner communion. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Last week, we contemplated the well-known story of Martha and Mary. Traditionally, this story has been offered to show the two classic approaches to salvation, the first through action and the second through prayer. The excuse of the Marthas of this world have always been, the church needs its Marthas too. Treatises, moreover, have been written to justify the Martha approach to piety, praising her self-sacrifice as perhaps an even higher demonstration of devotion. Thus do the unmeditative in religion try to justify themselves. Yet the fact remains that Jesus rebuked Martha. Elsewhere, moreover, he spoke of the virtue of feeding the hungry, curing the sick, and housing those who were homeless. It wasn't that he disapproved of serving people. Wrong attitude was the object of his criticism. What he was criticizing was forgetfulness of the true goal of right spiritual action. Good deeds, outwardly, without inner communion with God, will result in good karma, but will not bring freedom from all karma. The path to inner freedom was described by Paramahansa Yogananda in these words, be always calmly active and actively calm. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the second chapter, he who is not shaken by anxiety during times of sorrow nor elated during times of happiness, who is free from egoic desires and their attendant fear and anger. Such a one is of steady discrimination. Do your duty in life, so counsels this great scripture elsewhere, but never lose sight of him to whom all action should be dedicated. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Good morning, everyone. It's so nice to be together. And we have some friends and family visiting, and we're most, most happy to have you here. So <clears throat> we'll start by a reading from Master's Whispers from Eternity. 
This is number 72. O divine sculptor, chisel thou my life. Every sound that I make, let it have the vibration of thy voice. Every thought that I think, let it be saturated with the consciousness of thy presence. Let every feeling that I have glow with thy love. Let every act of my will be impregnated with thy divine vitality. Let every thought, every expression, every ambition be ornamented by thee. O divine sculptor, chisel thou my life according to thy design. So let's ask ourselves this question as we approach this subject. What's the purpose of life? Why did we come into this world? I think it's, as far as I can understand, the purpose of life is to transcend the ego and to realize our oneness with God. And everything that we do, just in that beautiful prayer poem, our thoughts, our words, our actions, should all be towards that end. And so, and yet we find ourselves here in the physical plane where there is much to be done. And there, for those of us who are spiritual seekers, there seems to be, there can be a dichotomy between acting and performing our duty, doing what's before us, and the inward search for God. And yet if we look at the words and the teachings of Master and Autobiography, and from Swamiji, we see repeatedly, and of course in the Gita, the Gita, the whole scripture is an injunction to act rightly in this world. And, but we go to the autobiography, and I'm sure we all recall that tremendous chapter in Experiencing Cosmic Consciousness where Sri Yukteswar taps Master on the heart and he goes into that state of cosmic consciousness that he'd been so desperately seeking his whole life. And he just experiences himself as one with everything, one with the cosmos. And then this experience begins to diminish. And what does Sri Teshwar say to him? You must not be overdrunk with ecstasy. You have much to do in this world. Go fetch your broom and let's sweep the porch. And Master goes on to say, I knew that treat. my guru, Deva, was telling me we must learn how to live a balanced life between deep experiences in meditation and fulfilling the world. Shri Teshwar said to him, you have much to do in this world. Don't be overdrunk with ecstasy. And so that's one example that they're telling us we need to do our duty. And Master said uh, to Swamiji, Swami Kriyananda, in turn, he said, um, your life will be one of intense activity and meditation. And Swami always underlined that he put and meditation second, intense activity first. But Master also said, to Swamiji, you will find God in this lifetime through a life of intense activity and meditation, combining the two. 
So how do we live in this world in a way that we fulfill our duty in the right way that brings us closer to the purpose of life, which is to find God? And you know, we'll be uh, celebrating Swami's birth anniversary on May 19th, this coming Wednesday. And so I thought I would use this opportunity of the Sunday service talk to honor Swamiji and to use his life as an example of living, acting, doing, serving, but always with the goal of finding God in everything he did. Now, Swami chose the monastic name, Swami Kriyananda, and Kriya and Karma have the same root in Sanskrit. I, we probably know this. It means karma and kriya mean to act. And so Swami's name means joy through action and joy through deep meditation, the practice of kriya. But I learned this in India in one of the, our visits there. Kriya also has a subtler meaning in Sanskrit, and that is action that dissolves all other action. So it isn't just acting, but it's that practice of meditation that burns up our karma and frees us and brings us to God. And so how do we merge being kriya, karma yogis and kriya yogis? That's the trick, isn't it? To be a, let's hyphenate it, a karma kriya yogi or a kriya karma yogi. But that's what we need to do. We need to act but with that inward centeredness, as we saw in the reading from the Gita, calm, centered, God, thoughtful activities. So let's look at Swamiji's life, shall we? And look at how he did this, some examples. I, we could give a very, very long talk about this, but we'll, we'll just pick some highlights. So first there was the sense of non-attachment to the fruits. Everything he did, everything, and we all know, I mean, the great accomplishments in his life, the books and the music and the communities and the lectures, and he did it all, but without any sense of, I'm doing this, I'm the doer. And it took a while for me to see that because he was such a dynamo of energy, so much flowed through him. But there, he didn't trail any tales of attachment. He just kept, and that's why he was able to do so much, because he just kept moving forward. He didn't look backward. What have I done? Oh my gosh, maybe I'm tired. I did all this today. He just kept moving forward in a flow of energy. And um, we had the great blessing of being with him in India when he was writing The Essence of the Bhagavad Gita. And there's just this dear story. He had a house. Some of you had the fortune to visit him there. It was in Gorgon, a suburb of Delhi. And uh, it was called Guru Kripa. And his staff all lived there with him. And, you know, it was touching. He had this beautiful home at Crystal Hermitage, meditation room, you know, dining room, gardens. And he moved into this house in Gorgon to serve his guru. And he had his bedroom, and he had his little altar, and that's all he had to himself, all in one room. But he, he, we were there to visit him for some weeks, and he said, 
when we got there, he said, I have a surprise for you. And we said, what? He said, I want you to live in the house with me, but there's no room because of the staff, his secretary and his cook and the directors there. So he said, I've made a room for you up on the roof. And we went out there <laughs> and it was like a, a porch, not even quite a porch, but it was these poles with kind of mosquito netting around it and a bed on the floor. And we, we said, oh, Swami, it's wonderful. So that's where we lived. And it was right next to the generator, which in India, the power goes up all the time. So anytime day, you're like, like that. But, but it was right next door to his office where he was writing the Gita. And so we would see that light go on anytime, three o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, all day long. He was just in there writing and he was so joyful. It wasn't like, I am writing master's commentaries on the Gita. It's master's telling the world how, what the Gita really means. There was no attachment to it. And he thought it would take him some years to write that book. He did it in three months. You know, it's a, almost a thousand-page volume, and it just flowed through him because there was no ego principle involved. It was just the flow of God through him, and it was beautiful to behold. Another aspect of, well, then also I'll tell two other stories with regard to that. He said sometimes, this happens more in India when he would be giving a lecture, and the person who introduces you kind of likes to go on and on. And so they would be talking about all of his accomplishments and everything he did. And you could just see Swami getting more and more embarrassed. <laughs> and he didn't want that attention on himself because he didn't think that way. But he said to us afterwards, he said, you know, they give me this big buildup and then ta-da. And he said, I feel like a little mouse just running across the stage because I, I don't see myself as anything important. And so it was just so beautiful as an example, how to do accomplish what's in front of you. And let's face it, Swami will outwardly accomplish more than probably all of us put together. But nevertheless, whatever is in front of us, if it's decorating the altar, if it's doing the sound, whatever it may be, just to do it with the sense of I'm not doing this, God's just flowing through me. And then another beautiful quality of Swami was really transcending likes and dislikes in his karma yoga, in his action. And remember, Master told him, your work in this life is lecturing, writing, and editing. And Swami was a little reluctant, and he said, but, but sir, I, I don't want to lecture. It's, so, it's such a razor's edge of getting into ego and thinking you're important and thinking you know more than other people. And Master just looked at him and said, you better learn to like it. It's what you have to do. And then later he said, living for God is martyrdom. And so very often I see, not very often, but from time to time, I see, well, I don't want to be doing this service. This service is so much more important. Guys, nothing is more important if it's done in the right spirit. It's all for God. And if we can overcome our likes and dislikes, and I want to do this and I don't want to do that, none of it, that keeps us from finding God. 
Swami just got out. I mean, we saw so many times when he was in bed with a fever and he had a lecture to give. And there was one time in particular, he said, can you do it for me? And we said, of course. And we were just about to walk out the door and there's Swami standing in the doorway, all dressed, ready to go. Okay, let's go. We'll do the lecture. And he did. Came home, collapsed in bed with a fever. Many times that happened. But he overcame that ego resistance of, I want to do this and I don't want to do that. It doesn't matter. It's the spirit with which you do it. It's the joy you bring to it. You know, if you're sick in bed and you can't lift a finger, to still be practicing the presence of God, that's action. That's karma yoga. And so really it's so important for us because to understand this because all of us who are part of Ananda, there's much to be done. There's much to be done. This is just the beginning. But we, the way it will be done is if we can say, what, what is needed? Where do you need me? Yesterday, we went for a walk with a dear friend. And we walked up to Brindaban Saturday morning. We said, oh, it'll be nice and quiet here. There were the monks. God bless you all. It was, they were having their work day. And they were so joyful. And they were splitting, uh, you know, cut wood, stacking it on the, their truck and delivering it. I think they did how many cords? Did you remember? Six. Six cords in the morning. It was just phenomenal. But it was just like... Did they want to be doing something else on a Saturday morning? It sure didn't look like it. They looked pretty happy doing that. And I, it just made me so happy to see that spirit here. So overcoming likes and dislikes, Swami lived it. He lived it, and he taught us um, whether you like it or not, if it's on your plate, you do it, and you do it with joy. And that's how great things that's how great lives are molded. Maybe great things don't happen outwardly, but that's how great lives emerge. And then, what are some of the qualities I saw in Swami that really are, they move beyond qualities to actions that really help me to live my life as a devotee one was loyalty. My goodness, his loyalty to master was not a sentiment. It was a dynamic act of dedication and will. No matter what happened, if the organization that had many disciples of master in it, if they threw him out, if people denounced him, if people degraded him, whatever, he was loyal to his guru. And it was an act of, as I say, it wasn't just passive, but it was dynamic under all circumstances. We were told a story uh, when we were in India last by, you all have know the story of uh, Rani Ban, who helped Swami with get the property in Delhi and what happened there. Well, her son was a good friend of Swami's, Indu Ban. He's an old man now, and we went, we always visit him every year when we go to India, or as often as we can get back to India. It's not every year, but we hope to go in 2022. But um, Indu told us when Swami was in India, after Master passed, there was a period in the late 50s, early 60s when he was there. 
and um, teaching and serving as guru. And he went to see another uh, well-respected spiritual teacher, Swami Muktananda was his name. He's passed. But um, then they were talking. I mean, Swami was not guru hunting by any means, but he, was, he wanted to be around a man that was reputed to be a saint. And, um, and Muktananda started, for some reason, started saying, your guru's teachings aren't right. They, he teaches Hong Sa as the mantra. It's not Hong Sa, it's so hum. And Swami didn't want to argue, but he didn't like the vibration. And he, he left shortly after that. He got on a plane. He flew right back to Delhi, where Indu and Rani Bond lived. He took a cab to Indu's house from the airport. And he, he called out to Indu, Indu, come right now. And, he, and he, Swami, he, Indu said Swami was just shaking. He was so, it, the turmoil, because he wanted to know, is this true? And... And so he said, we must find out. I'm not getting out of the cab till you take me to somebody who can answer this question. And Indus knew a, a great, great a saint and a scholar, Swami Narayan, or Narayan Swami. And they went to his house, and he said, tell me, which is the true mantra, Hangsa or Soham? And this man was sort of playing with Swamiji. And he said, oh, let's have tea first. <laughs> I don't, maybe you would like a little bit. Anyway, finally, after Swami was just sitting on the edge of a seat, Swami Narayan had this vast library of Hindu scriptures. And he, he told his uh, assistant, go up on the, in the back of the room on the fourth shelf, 15th book from the left, get that book out. And he went and got it, and sure enough, there it was. He knew every line in every book on that shelf, in that library, and, and it said, it has, in ancient times, the true version of the mantra is Hong Saw. It has been corrupted down through time to Soham, but the true mantra is Hong Saw. Swami was so loyal to his guru that he had to clarify and defend that. And we need to be that too, that's action, what we do do it for your guru. Do it for God. Do it for loyalty. I want your work to spread. I want your name to be known. I want to build community. I want to work in attunement with you. So loyalty. And then from that comes attunement. If Swami said, all the things I've done in life, I don't care about. I want to be known after I go. I want people to say, he was a good disciple. He was in tune with his guru. That's an act. Attunement isn't just, again, you read a book, you study something. Attunement is a dynamic act of will that I will not let anything, my thoughts, monitor them. And particularly in these times when there's so much negativity in the air, make sh not just you know globally, make sure your thoughts are upward moving, are positive are filled with acceptance and compassion. It's a choice. Attunement is a daily, moment-by-moment -moment choice that we make. And it's not fair to say, oh, well, you spent a lot of time with them. You're in tune. I just came. No, no, no. Attunement is a choice we make every day. And we move in that direction. So loyalty, attunement, and then devotion. Last night, I keep referring to India because last night we did a satsang for uh, India. We do a monthly one called In Conversation. And someone asked the question, how did Swami develop so much devotion to Master? 
And that was a good question because it helps us understand. And Jatish gave a very good answer. There's a little spider here. Goodbye. Um, and then, then I thought about it and I thought, you know, Swami's devotion wasn't, again, just a sentiment. It was a force. It was a power. And remember the story uh, from the scriptures in India of a young boy who goes to a guru and said, I want to find God. And the guru says, okay, come, let's bathe in the Ganges. And so they go in the Ganges, and the guru takes this young boy's head and pushes it under the water and holds him there. And the little boy's struggling and struggling, you know, and, and finally when he just thinks his lungs are going to burst, the guru pulls him up and he asks him, what were you thinking about <laughs> when you were under the water? What was your intention? And he said, I wanted to breathe. And the guru said, when you love, when you want God as much as you wanted air, come back to me and I'll show you how to find God. And so Swami's devotion was born of certainly this lifetime that we know of a desperation to find what was real and true in life. When you read his story, how he, he just knew this world wasn't real. He was desperate to find a direction in life, meaning something he could dedicate himself to. But it wasn't until he read Autobiography of a Yogi in those three days and then traveled to Los Angeles to meet Master. Then he found it. And first words, we know, I want to be your disciple. It was the desperation to find truth, to find meaning. And once he made that connection, the devotion, the dedication, the love, it was with every fiber of his being, and nothing could deter that. Swami said, and we've quoted this before at the end of his life, I no longer know where Swami Kriyananda ends and Yogananda begins. That oneness that comes from beautiful, beautiful self-offering of devotion. That, but again, it's not a passive thing. It's karma yoga. To see devotion as karma yoga, as something that we act on, that we live on, that we don't ever, see. you know, I was listening to um, uh, the tape, Music for Meditation, which is Swami's chanting. And if you listen to it sensitively, it's so beautiful because he'll be chanting with he had a melodious voice and you know it's filled with devotion but when he says will my days fly away without seeing thee my lord whenever he says my lord his voice changes and it's so filled with sweetness and sensitivity and devotion and our chanters thank you thank you for what you bring to the music and the chanting it's such a reflection of Swamiji. It's so much in tune. But that devotion, so not, you know, not to ever think of the guru casually, to speak of him casually or indifferently, but devotion is the focus of the heart and the mind. And what it leads to ultimately is that oneness, that self-surrender, self-offering. And so... All of the activity versus intercommunion, actually there isn't a dichotomy in the end, is there? Because the highest form of activity is 
communion with God in meditation. And all of the things we do from sweeping the porch to cutting firewood to stocking shelves in the market, whatever it might be, everything can lead us to that inner communion. And I just wanted to close from this with this uh, shloka from the Bhagavad Gita. This is from the third chapter, not the one we read earlier, but it just seemed so beautiful way, a beautiful way to end. What is right action? Krishna says to Arjuna, offer to me your every deed, devoid of egotism and desire, inwardly centered in the soul, ever calm and free from worries, be dutifully engaged, in the battle of life. And so each one of us have a different battle before us, but without egotism and desire, calmly focus, engage in the battle of life before you. And this is how we, following in Swami's footsteps, will find God. Thank you. Lord, may we serve you all our days. Rejoice to sing your praise as we together your wisdom seek. Charge us with truth whenever we speak. Lord, may we ever know your will. Come to us when our hearts are still. As we your guidance with joy receive, may we as one your bliss achieve. As we your guidance with joy receive, may we as one your bliss achieve.